Mari and Jeffrey, thank you so much for taking some time today. You folks reached out to us actually quite a bit ago when the, uh, the FATF guidance came out in October uh, on risk-based approach for virtual assets and virtual asset service providers. And, you know, I think it's pretty clear that the AML community is generally, and I underscore generally, aware of the challenges with virtual assets, digital currencies, cryptocurrencies. But at least from my vantage point, I think they always need more information, both current information, what's going on today, but also from folks like yourselves that have been advising clients on how to comply with laws and regulations, how to prepare for potential laws and regulations, how to understand the environment. So if it's okay with both of you, I'd like to start off with just some definitions. Um, one of the things that I saw from FATF and our community is very well aware of the importance of FATF when they issue guidance and statements and reports. But when they talk about virtual assets, here's one of the things they said. I thought this would be a good jumping off point. Virtual assets have many potential benefits. They could make payments easier, faster, cheaper. Provide alternative methods for those without access to regular financial products. And that's a big issue for, for our community too, as we know, access and inclusion. But without proper regulation, they risk becoming a virtual safe haven for the financial transactions of criminals and terrorists. So I'd like to cover two things. Your definitions of virtual assets, why they're important, what the challenges are, and then later on, since you're both former prosecutors, talk about uh, how they can be misused and how we, broadly we, the AML community, can be better prepared to either work with certain entities or be prepared for activity that could be potentially suspicious or what have you. So I'll throw it out to both of you to start off. Let's, what do we mean when we talk about virtual assets? Sure, I can jump in on that one. Um, I mean, virtual assets are being defined very broadly in the new guidelines. So it's really any digital representation of value. And the focus is more on how are those rep representations of value are being used. Because I think FATF is aware that there's constant new de technological developments. And if you have a very specific definition that will exclude future innovation, then you're going to run into problems. So both with respect to the uh, the de de definition of virtual assets and virtual asset service provider, they're very focused on functions. So with respect to digital assets, the focus is on uh, whether or not the digital representation of value, value can be used for making payments or for making investments. Yeah, and, and just, to, just to kind of build off of that, it's, it's interesting, John, and I think it's great that you begin there because with FATF, it's always all about definitions. Right. Um, and, 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 and arguably, these are the most important definitions in the cryptoverse, if you will, right? It's, um, you know, I think Jeffrey nailed it in terms of virtual asset. And then the real question is, you know, are you a virtual asset service provider? Are you a VASP or what FinCEN would identify as a money service business, essentially? And what that means to FATF is, are you exchanging crypto for crypto? Are you exchanging crypto for fiat? Are you custodying crypto? And to Jeffrey's point, it is a very, very broad definition. Are you providing financial services um, for crypto or, or in crypto? And the answer to so many different cryptocurrency businesses is, is yes. Um, and I think what FATF wants regulators to do is interpret this guidance very, very broadly to include, um, you know, arguably a, sort of a lot of the emerging technology like DeFi, like potentially NFTs 
uh, that I know we'll talk about uh, over the course of today. One of the things that uh, has come up and questions regarding uh, virtual asset service providers, do they have to be activity-based? Talk talk a bit about that. We'll talk a little bit later because, Ari, you wrote a really excellent article for ACAMS today where you uh, one of your side notes is about how the Security Exchange Commission is uh, you know, debating the question of whether or not some of these things are, quote, securities and how that all fits in. And you mentioned FinCEN before. But what does it mean to be activity-based? Jeffrey, you want to kick that off? I'm, I'm happy to jump in. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, sorry. <laughs> really, what FinCEN is focused on is they want to make sure that they don't have a narrow definition that is easily avoided. And you see this a lot in this industry because really stepping back, one of the reasons why these FATF definitions are so important in this space is because a lot of the entities that are functioning as virtual asset service providers are not very sophisticated with respect to regulations. Um, like Ari just mentioned DeFi, if you're a really smart middle school student who understands uh, coding, you can make a DeFi platform because yeah. many forms of these platforms are completely open source. And so somebody else can come in, copy the technology and boom, they, they're functioning as a virtual asset service provider that is potentially capable of processing millions of dollars worth of transactions. So because of that, FATF wanted to step in and say, we don't want to have a really specific definition that is easily avoided. And a lot of people early on would just say, oh, I can avoid that definition. I'm just not going to be a VASP. I'm going to call myself something else. Uh, problem solved. <laughs> and FATF saw that that was happening and wanted to say, hold on, you can't just define yourself as not being a virtual asset service provider. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. The second way in which a lot of people that in the early phases of this virtual currency and virtual asset technology development uh, were avoiding these definitions was by focusing too much on technology. So they would say, you know, I'm not a bank because I don't have a physical branch or right. I'm not an exchange because I'm a software provider. And so if the technology that I'm making use of is just a software program, then I can't be functioning uh, as somebody that is a money services business or a virtual asset uh, service provider. And FATF wanted to make clear it is technology neutral, it is nomenclature neutral, and they're really gonna focus on what it is that you're doing, what activity you're performing for your customers. So for example, if you're involved in transmitting virtual assets for them, if you're involved in exchanging virtual assets for them, then it doesn't matter what technology you're using. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. You're still going to, going to likely fall within the definition of a virtual asset service provider. Yeah, just to kind of put a point on it, it's interesting. I mean, I think we, we sort of overcomplicate these things at times, but really, if something transfers is digital as a digital form and transfers value, uh, in most cases, it's going to be a virtual asset. And if um, you are a cryptocurrency business, in most cases, and operate like a business, you are going to be regulated like a virtual asset service provider. And one of the, I think the things that's missing here sometimes is when we talk about this is, well, what does that mean? Um, and what it really means to businesses is that they have to build out a modern risk-based compliance program, which requires compliance officers, requires um, policies and procedures, requires a licensing uh, you know, 
regime or effort it requires going to get a license from your federal and state regulator. Um, in the crypto space, it oftentimes or, or really does require a transaction monitoring solution like TRM in order to make sure that you're, you know, understanding who you're doing business with in the crypto space. Um, so that that's essentially what it means to be a VASP. And that's why these definitions are so important, because it's not just about sort of defining who you are. It ultimately that that definition is, is essentially means determines what you have to do. And that oftentimes is sort of where where the real work gets done. So um, where are we right now in the United States? So, uh, are you were at Treasury for a bit. Both of you have worked with FinCEN. I want to ask some follow up questions on oversight because it sort of depends on who the examiners are in terms of how strong the oversight is. And in my humble opinion, having done this for many years, but where do we stand today? So your your explanation of the definitions makes sense to me, but right now, how how is it handled? Give me a practical walkthrough. Uh, Client walks in the door and tells you X, Y, and Z. What are you doing? Yeah, no, I love it. I think one of the great myths that you see right now in the space is that crypto is this sort of unregulated Wild West. Um, and it's actually very regulated. There's not a lot of legal frameworks. There's not a lot of sort of like legal sort of structure to this or, or legislated. But the regulators have been very much out there, particularly FinCEN, which is sort of what this community, I think, is most focused on. And, yeah. you know, it's funny. I was on a panel uh, maybe four or five months ago. And I used the term unregulated exchange and a close friend of mine, I was at treasury for about two years and a close friend of mine at FinCEN, who's a pretty senior official there, texted me, never use that word. It was a trigger word for him because he said every exchange is a regulated exchange. So if you ever hear me talk about this now, I use the term non-compliant exchange. Um, and the fact of the matter is that every cryptocurrency exchange, every cryptocurrency broker, um, every uh, sort of custodian is a regulated entity in the United States. Um, they are essentially considered to be a, a Bitcoin ATM operators. They are considered to be a um, essentially a money service business. And that that means you are in, you are required by FinCEN to have the sort of compliance infrastructure that we were we were talking about a moment ago. Um, I think what what we're what what is lacking is sort of that clear legal framework uh, from Congress, uh, sort of some of the issues that you alluded to earlier, John, in terms of sort of what are the definitions here? Is something a security? Is it a commodity? Uh, who is the regulator? But really from sort of an AML perspective, if you're a crypto business, uh, you are required to have a license and sort of a robust compliance program by FinCEN today, um, which I think is, I think is, it, and that is not true all, everywhere in the world, to be fair. But in the United States, if you're operating one of these entities, you are highly regulated. Jeff, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, one initial thing that I just point out is it's true that a lot of entities in the crypto space are subject to regulation, but a lot aren't as well. And that line can be unclear. And even in the, in this guidance, you'll see there's a number of instances, for example, where FATF will say, uh, with respect to NFTs, it can be a virtual asset, but sometimes it's not. Uh, with respect to software providers, you know, they say a software provider isn't necessarily a virtual asset service provider, but often it is. And it kind of depends on how that software functions, what type of control the entity has over that software. And similarly, and I think potentially even more problematically, they're a little unclear about when, for example, a governance body uh, that is governing you know, the functioning of, of a virtual asset, such as a cryptocurrency, a stable coin, or a different type of cryptocurrency, whether or not those governance bodies will be treated as virtual asset service providers. 
And again, I mean, they're, they're right that it's difficult to come up with a bright line rule. Uh, but one result of this is a lot of people that are in the industry really don't know whether or not uh, they're a virtual asset service provider. Sometimes the answer is very easy, uh, but sometimes right. the answer can be can be pretty difficult. Yeah, I, I would just add to that. I think Jeffrey really hit on kind of like, at least, you know, two, two or actually hit on like three or four of sort of the real hot topics that came out of that guidance. I think the issue, the areas of sort of NFTs and DeFi are maybe some of the most interesting because first, FATF is really the only sort of body, you know, I don't call them a regulator, sort of a standard setting body in the world right. has even really tried to tackle those issues at all. You've not seen regulators really even start to sort of put together definitions uh, for DeFi or NFTs. In the NFT space, what the, what the, um, what the guidance specifically says is that NFT sort of in their current form, digital collectibles, if you will, are not virtual assets. But, and this is maybe the biggest but in the guidance, essentially what they say is if you can use them to transfer value, uh, if there's a secondary market, if you can use them for payments, then they could be a virtual asset. Well, the current use case for NFTs is entirely that, right? It's sort of you know, art, digital art and collectibles that there is a very lucrative secondary market for. If you have sort of boring, a board, a yacht club, you buy it in many respects as an investment mechanism to sell later or a crypto punk or one of these sorts of things. So I actually, I had an opportunity, um, the, uh, the chairs of the uh, virtual asset contact group of FATF uh, sat down with me for a TRM talks. And I asked them that exact question. Well, isn't the use case today a virtual asset under your definition? And their answer was, you know, what you just described, that, that, that situation where one is transferring value or there's a secondary market, yes, those NFTs are virtual assets. What's not a virtual asset is something that's sort of purely a, a, a digital representation of an experience or you know, something that is only yours, you know, maybe a ticket. Although if that ticket has you know, a secondary value or a secondary market, maybe not. I, I, uh, I, I, I did my undergrad at, at Duke University and uh, yesterday there was a professor there who issued his certificates for his blockchain course as NFTs. Uh, you can see them on OpenSea. I thought that was the coolest thing, but those are not virtual assets, right? Those belong to those people and those people alone. There's not a secondary market for them, but um, just such interesting questions coming out of this guidance. You know, the uh, the whole NFT thing just baffles me, but I'm, I'm pr pretty old school. But one of the things that you referenced in your article, Ari, is when you talked about uh, collectibles versus investments sort of struck me because you use the analogy that some say they're like baseball cards. But as we both know, baseball cards can have value, right? So somebody bought Honus Wagner's first card for millions of dollars way back when, right? So um, what, what struck me about that particular debate is going on in a similar fashion with antiquities and the art world under the Bank Secrecy Act, something else that I've been involved in where we were able to get Congress to agree to put antiquities under the BSA because they have been misused for the movement of illicit funds. Art, not yet, but they're studying, your former colleagues at Treasury are studying the question and required by Congress to come up with a study whether or not art should be regulated in a similar fashion for the same reason. I don't see any distinction from, from a criminal standpoint if you can use art or antiquities to assist terrorists in, in funding, why couldn't you use NFTs to do that too? So from a standpoint of should they be regulated, it's a question of parameters and all the things that you referenced. But as former prosecutors, isn't that something that should be factored in as well? I mean, you got to deal with definitions. I get that. But it seems to me the way you've described 
NFTs, sure, that value could be used to commit crime. So should there be some, I'm not saying what kind, some obligation to make sure they're not being used for illegal activity? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to kind of jump in on that. I, I, um, I, I think it's actually the distinction is you can actually transfer that value at the speed of the internet. Uh, as opposed to art and antiquities, which require friction, uh, you know, significant friction to okay. prove yep. goods. So I actually yep. think it's a lot. I think it's probably easier to use uh, in many respects for money laundering and terrorist financing and that the sort of stuff that we worry about. So, no, I, I think what you're seeing from FATF is really the first step towards, you know, building out the regulation that you're describing. I think the art and antiquities market is is a is a fine, um, you know, analogy for this as well. And I think you're going to start to see that market sort of much more highly regulated. There was gr a great report which I would recommend folks to read coming out of the permanent subcommittee uh, on investigations from right. the U.S. Senate on, on that sort of the use of, of art by Russian oligarchs sanctioned at, to evade sanctions. And that's really what caused OFAC to come out and start to really act on this. Um, and I think you're going to see sort of a move there. And it's the same in the NFT space um, uh, as yeah. well. It, it, this is going to become a, a, a point where NFT marketplaces, NFT issuers, just like um, you know, the Sotheby's and the Christie's of the world are going to have to file SARS and, you know, build out compliance controls, uh, which, which, which admittedly, at least in those large auction houses, they're already starting to do or, ha or have done. No, that makes sense. Uh, Jeffrey, you referenced uh, stable coins before. D can you define that and talk about the governance challenges there? Uh, sure. So a stable coin is basically a cryptocurrency whose value is tied to something that causes the uh, the value of the stablecoin to not fluctuate greatly over time, or to fluctuate, but in uh, but in proportion to the fluctuation of the value of some other asset. So, I think a lot of people think of the one ex main example of stablecoins as being a coin whose value is tied to the to the value of a particular fiat currency, such as the U.S. dollar. And there's okay. various ways to do that. One way to do it is to have one U.S. dollar deposited in a bank account for every single token that is issued. And so it's easy to see why the value of that token would generally be about a dollar, because you could take that token, go to the bank or, or go to the entity that opened the bank account, say, here, I have your token. Please give me one U.S. dollar. They give you one U.S. dollar. And if that's the way the system function, then generally the value of that cryptocurrency would be about $1. And there's a number of different stable coins. Some of them are tied to US dollars. Some of them are tied to a basket of different fiat currencies. And some of them uh, are tied to things like commodities, whether it's silver or gold. And it can be both synthetic, meaning it's not backed by a particular asset or currency, or it can be asset backed, which means it's actually backed by uh, either the asset itself, diamonds, gold, what have you, or uh, the fiat currency itself, U.S. dollars or euros that are actually deposited in some bank. Well, it's actually a logical name to call it stablecoin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it says what it is. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's go back to the guidance uh, again. It's a, it's an updated guidance from a as I understand, it was first issued back in, I think, some point in 2019, and there's been updates uh, to it. Um, we want our audience, when they get a chance, it's over 100 pages, to go to FATF's website and take a look at that. There's also uh, a brief, you know, similar to an executive summary uh, that they have there, too, that they can take a look at. But Ari, from what we've not mentioned yet, what are some other, other reasons 
for the guidance and what can practitioners glean from that? I know in some cases it's uh, awareness level, in, you know, increasing our understanding and some of it's, if not all of it's directed to governments to improve their oversight. But if you're a practitioner like both of you are, what do you take away from uh, from the guidance in general, from a, from if I can use the term, from a practical standpoint? Sure. Yeah. No. From a practical standpoint, I think the I think the key is starting to get into sort of as we began with those definitions. And really, what Fatif has said here is that these definitions have not changed over time. They are the same. But as we are sort of seeing emerging technologies, um, we want to sort of apply show you how we're applying those definitions. So NFTs is a great example that we've already sort of talked through. Jeffrey mentioned stable coins. I think the only one we really didn't sort of touch on is is decentralized finance. And we get right. all the time. We get all the time questions around sort of, so is, is DeFi, how do you regulate DeFi? And, and FATF's answer is essentially, uh, again, relatively pragmatic. And that is to Jeffrey's initial point, there are a lot of things, a lot of um, you know, projects and, and companies that call themselves decentralized. Um, but that is really a very specific thing. And what that means is that uh, basically you have a software, uh, someone creates a software, uh, smart contract, sends it onto the blockchain and no longer touches it again. That's truly decentralized. And I think what FATF is saying is that most uh, projects that call themselves DeFi or decentralized are not really that and have general counsels and have CEOs and have, you know, so what, what, what FATF says is, look, you're going to be regulated like a VASP, like a virtual asset service provider, have to have compliance controls and transaction monitoring and all of this if you are an owner operator of a DeFi project. And what that means is, what's the indicia of ownership? It's the same kind of right. question we always ask. And that is, are you interacting with users? Um, are, are, you know, are you making a profit? Are you, do, you have, do you exhibit certain control over the entity? And what FATF says is, look, if you're doing that, you know, uh, then you very well can be regulated because there is someone who can build out a compliance function. There's someone who can respond to a subpoena, who can file a SAR. Um, and I think uh, that's really sort of what FATF is saying. And I think my big takeaway on this is, look, um, whether folks like it or not, FATF is telling regulators they need to be regulating in real time, sort of the, the crypto Twitter hot questions of the day, right? Like NFTs and DeFi and stable coins and unhosted wallets. Um, and regulators need to be keeping up with the technology um, and applying their definitions to it. So that was, that was sort of my big takeaway is like, hey, it's really key. I think one of your questions early on was sort of like what folks should be doing or, or, or reading and really thinking about. And I think right. any guidance that's being pushed out by any regulator uh, that you are responsible to, whether it's your state regulator, federal regulator, or in the case of FATF, oftentimes you're seeing things come out a year or more ahead of where regulators tend to be. Jeffrey, I'm not, I won't ask Ari this because um, he obviously has a background of working with being at the Treasury Department, I'm sure he could be, uh, um, you know, open about this this question. But I want to go with somebody like yourself, a practitioner. What's the biggest challenge when you bring either bring a client in or you ask questions to folks at FinCEN or Treasury, law enforcement regulators, and, and I know a lot of them too, and, and they're trying. But like the rest of us, they're not learning on the fly, but they're sort of trying to figure all this out. So how? You know, sort of walk us through high level how you would you would explain to them, or what what would be the process as a, as a lawyer, as an advisor, to explain to somebody who's going to be a regulator. Hey, here's what we are. Here's what we're not. Here's some places you can go to understand that the fan of guidance is perfect, right? But I've done this long enough to remember when MSBs 
were first brought under uh, BSA back in the late 1990s. You could argue earlier, but and they would argue, hey, we're not banks. You know, we don't have any law enforcement responsibilities. And banks tried that in the 80s and it didn't work. So when you're bringing in people that are not used to being compliance people and explaining it to regulators, sort of walk us through that. Give us some practical advice on, on how to explain that that infrastructure. Sure. Uh, I actually just had a conversation yesterday with a client about doing exactly that, which we're going to be doing next week. And I think what I usually try to do is start with kind of first principles and say, you know, look, let's analogize the, in the overall transaction, how this is similar if, it, if we're talking about the transmission of virtual assets, how this is similar to what a money services business does. And then I'll talk about how the transmission occurs and who all of the participants are and what roles they have. Because initially, a lot of times what will happen is a regulator will go in and say, look, a transmission's occurring. Here's the name I see, uh, that name, that entity that I see on some website or that you know came in from some law enforcement person or for, or for somebody who filed a complaint. That name must be the entity that's doing everything on uh, this transaction. And that's not the case. Uh, and I think MSBs are a perfect example. So right. if you look at the, at the value chain in the prepaid industry, for example, or you look at the payments process, you know, there'll be a bank, there'll be a primary money transmitter, but often there'll be 15 other entities that are somehow involved in providing infrastructure, working on the graphical user interface, doing all kinds of things in the process. Some will be client facing, some will be bank facing, and not every single one of those entities is necessarily a money services business. Mm -hmm. Often multiple entities will be, but often multiple entities will not be. And so by analogizing to that process and then explaining the particular role that the client has in the overall process, that often will help the regulator say, oh, okay, I see that you know what your client is doing is not money transmission, the same way that what certain type of entities that are involved sometimes in more traditional financial transactions are not money service business activity. Or, or conversely, it, it is. And they should apply a similar, you know, similar screens and uh, comply with the same regulations that money services businesses do. You know, Ari, I think uh, from your from your vantage point, when you were at Treasury and your colleagues, what Jeffrey outlined makes a ton of sense, right? Explain yep. how what you are, what you're not. What what worked for you folks to better understand? Besides the obvious, having an open discussion where you can do follow up questions. I get all that, but as you're walking into something where you have very little knowledge, so let's just use that example. Let's just say you really you've done a little bit of reading, but you're trying you're, you're trying. What what worked for you when when you were enrolled to try to better understand basically a new industry and whether or not you should go down the road of regulation or at least consider it. Sure. Yeah, no, I think that, you know, one thing we were really good at, and I think they've actually even gotten better at is sort of like really making sure that they're constantly having that open dialogue. And I can speak for Treasury more than other regulators, mm -hmm. but really kind of having that open dialogue with the private sector. You know, one, one, one like, um, I think there's, and I think it's really to, sort of making sure you're having those conversations and that door is open to sort of be able to bring in. And, you know, folks reach out to us all the time at TRM Labs, uh, regulators and say, hey, we want to understand what is possible in transaction monitoring. We want to understand what is possible in tracing cryptocurrency transactions. And we'll come in and sort of educate them on the space. I think one thing, you know, I think in terms of your community, John, sort of our community, you know, right. there's, so, there's so much that regulators are pushing out these days 
And um, I think it starts with enforcement actions. I think a lot of other people will say guidance, but to me, the enforcement actions are way more interesting because right. you can see essentially you read those and you say, all right, I, sh I should not do this or I'm going to get in trouble or these are the types of controls I have in place. A great example is, you know, OFAC uh, took some enforcement actions over the last year uh, for uh, crypto against crypto payment processors, BitGo and BitPay. And if you read those um, enforcement actions, it's really a blueprint for essentially sort of either what to do and what not to do when you're building out compliance. You should have transaction monitoring. You should have, if you have IP data, you should be using it and looking at it to make sure you're not engaging with entities in North Korea or Sudan or Iran. So I think that like, it, it's, it is definitely sort of keeping up with the guidance, but it's also keeping up with other things that regulators are signaling to the industry uh, that they should be sort of baking into their compliance controls. And just, just to put a point on it, what regulators want to hear when you walk in is that you have done all the things, you know, OFAC put out some really terrific, I'll call it a brochure in October because it wasn't really new guidance per se, right. but I highly recommend it because it's really like for the crypto industry, because it's really, it goes through all the enforcement actions, all the sanctions actions against SUEX and Chadex and other sort of uh, uh, crypto exchanges. It goes through FAQs and it goes through guidance and says, hey, if you're building a risk-based sort of sanctions compliance program, this is what you should have. And if you walk in having had a breach or having had a problem or having sanctions exposure and you had all those things in place, I think you're in a lot better shape than if you walk in and sort of say, my bad. Um, and it's, 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 it's a dance. And I think Jeffrey kind of really outlined how to do it as a lawyer, um, right. but it's, it's a dance. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I can remember the days when you go to OFAC and ask for compliance recommendations, and they would simply say, don't violate the law. So, <laughs> so the fact that they're being much more specific is obviously not just helpful, but it makes more sense uh, for all sides so they can figure out what not to do. Let, let me end on this. Both of you, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, but Jeffrey, I'll start with you. I go in to see you. Uh, I've heard a lot about your, your background and you, you understand this space. And I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out what I want to do in the virtual asset world. Just high level, a couple things that I should be aware of, besides everything that you guys have talked about for the past half hour, which I really appreciate. But I'm walking in. This is our first conversation. This isn't a three-hour meeting. It's an elevator conversation. Hey, Jeffrey, I want to come talk to you about virtual assets. What, what should I know before I come see you? Right. So as you know, John, I've been doing this for seven or eight years. So I've seen dozens of clients that have come in uh, in exactly that way. And one guidance that I try to give them as early as possible, and this is partially something that I learned myself interacting with these clients, is that because the guidance is activity-based, you need to be thinking about it whenever you pivot as an entity. Because I've had many, many occasions where I'll get a very specific question you know, if I do this one thing, am I going to be a money services business or am I going right. to be subject to securities regulation? And I'll give an answer to that. And then they'll pivot the next week or they'll change what they they'll be like, oh, great. Now I have an answer. I'm not regulated. I will now I'm going to do these 10 things. Well, if you start doing one of those 10 things, you then can become regulated. So I think big picture, it's extremely important in this space to know because the regulators are focused on the specific services you provide, you need to internalize that this is an ongoing process. And whenever you roll out new uh, services to your clients, because many of these fintech companies want to kind of do everything that their clients want them to do, whenever you 
add a new service, you need to be thinking about regulation and whether or not making that change will subject you to additional regulation. Makes a ton of sense. Ari, uh, final thoughts? And, oh, I should just say before you do that, your article that I mentioned in ACAMPS today, the current uh, edition, Crypto Compliance 2001, an excellent adventure. It's uh, an excellent quick uh, review of uh, the importance that you already referenced. You referenced one or two of the enforcement actions, the need for policies and procedures and all of that. So folks, if they haven't already uh, uh taking a look at that. They should take a look at that. And uh, we'll, we'll link that article to, to this posting as well, as well as to both of your organizations. But Ari, last, last points, uh, takeaways, if you will. Terrific. Yeah, no, my answer to that question is always get a good lawyer like Jeffrey. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know, I love yeah, that good, answer. Yeah. <laughs> Don't change that answer. That's my answer when someone asks me, you know, what should I do about crypto? Like, go find a good lawyer. Look, I think it, it, we are in an incredibly interesting, evolving space. And it's literally, it's, it, I think it, I've never seen anything move faster in my lifetime, certainly. And um, I, I think what that means is that regulators are trying to react in real time. Businesses are trying to, and compliance officers, this community are trying to skate to where the puck is going. And I think that it, it really is important um, for sort of, you know, to gain some legal clarity here. And I, I'm hopeful that we'll sort of build that out over the course of the next few years. But before we do, I think it's important to just consider the fact that um, as scary as that may be at times, we also have more visibility on this new financial system than we have ever had in human history, right? You have never been able to see the flow of funds in real time, you know, move right. on the blockchain. And I'm hopeful that that gives, you know, that at, at TRM, we, when, we, when we talk to regulators, when we go to the Hill, though, that's what we're talking about, because we're hopeful that regulators say, hey, maybe we can regulate this new financial system in new ways because of that visibility. And um, that's kind of, that's what I'm so excited about, um, you know. And what we really all want to do is sort of build that new economy. Uh, we just want to build in the trust layer. And we think that, you know, AML is foundational infrastructure and the people doing this work, Jeffrey, on sort of the legal side, compliance officers, um, they're, they're sort of tip of the spear in, 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 in doing that. It's, it's an exciting moment. That's great. Um, Ari Redboard, Jeffrey Alberts, thank you so much for your time today and your insight. I really appreciate you uh, explaining all of this. And obviously, the charge to our to our clients in the community and folks that are watching this is stay current. The FATF document will obviously continue to be updated. Look at what FinCEN and the agencies are doing in the states, wherever your clients are. I think, as you both have mentioned, this is going to continue to both challenge us in a good way, but also if you can stay sort of ahead of the game, that's uh, that's great advice that you both have given us. So thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Sure. John, thank you so much for having us.